Hey there, Next Real listeners, this is Andy. Before we dive into this episode, I wanted to let you know about an exciting change. As you may have noticed, we have been including episodes of one of our other shows, Movies We Like, in this feed. Well, we are thrilled to announce that Movies We Like has grown so much that it's now ready to strike out on its own. From now on, to catch the latest episodes of Movies We Like, you'll want to head over to its dedicated feed and hit that subscribe button. We've got plenty of other great content lined up, and we don't want you to miss a thing. Don't worry, though, the next Real Film Podcast isn't going anywhere. We'll still be bringing you the same in-depth discussions and analysis of your favorite films right here in this feed. So if you love what we do with Movies We Like, be sure to search for it in your favorite podcast app and subscribe today. Thanks for being a part of our podcast journey, and now, let's get back to the show. Andy, can you believe we've almost hit 700 episodes of The Next Reel? I know, it's crazy. And with all the other episodes in our family of podcasts, we are well over 1,200 episodes of Movie Conversation. It's really pretty amazing that we've gotten to have these in-depth movie chats every week for over a decade now. And we couldn't have done it without our loyal community of film fans. Their support over the years has meant so much. For sure. That reminds me, we should give the merch store a shout out. Buying shirts from thenextreel.com slash merch is a great way listeners can continue to support the show. Plus, they get to sport our great designs. Absolutely. I think sometimes folks forget we have a variety of shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more available. In fact, a great place to start is with a shirt sporting the Next Reel's logo. We also have that classic Fast Times Spicoli Surf School tee, or the weirdly popular Rusty's European Tour shirt. The one from National Foods European Vacation. Why is that so popular? <laughs> Search me, but we have sold a ridiculous number of those. I guess there are a lot of Rusties taking trips to Europe? We're always adding new designs based on movies we've covered, like our brand new design for a streetcar named Desire, featuring a streetcar named Desire. So if you want to rep your love of TNR and films, head to thenextreel.com slash merch. Every purchase helps us continue to have these weekly in-depth conversations. So visit thenextreel.com slash merch today. And as always, thanks for listening and being a part of the Next Real community. We've got lots more great movie chats coming your way. Welcome to the Next Reel's Movies We Like, part of the True Story FM Entertainment Podcast Network. I'm Andy Nelson, flying solo for this episode. Today, we've invited Academy Award-winning costume designer Deborah Scott to talk about Roland Jaffe's The Mission, a movie she likes. Deborah, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, I'm thrilled to chat with you about this movie, which you, uh, you know, you sent us a big list of movies. This was at the top of the list, and it was the first one that I gravitated to because we've never talked about it on our show before, and it is one of my favorite movies. Obviously, I didn't know that, but <laughs> I was like, oh my God, this is great. We got a chance to chat about a movie that really means a lot to me, and so I am very excited. That's wonderful. A lot of people don't know that movie. I still feel it's a little obscure. I guess at the time it wasn't because, it, you know, it had a lot of nominations and things like that. But now, 20 years later, 30 years later, whatever it is. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's just not talked about very much. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it's frustrating because at the time of its release, it was largely considered a box office flop. It didn't make its money back, which is uh, strange to me. But I suppose, given the topic, maybe it wasn't something that was as uh, as much interest to people. Yeah. But as you said, it did end up getting a number of awards. Mm -hmm. And I think if there's one thing 
that people still would perhaps recognize as coming from this film. It's Ennio Marconi's score, which... Oh, my God. Yeah. It's one of the tops, right? <laughs> I mean, it's so good. It's it's really the glue that kind of holds the movie together. It's just, I don't want to get off topic, but there's not that much dialogue, really. There's some scenes where there's intense dialogue for a short amount of time, but there's long, long stretches where there's no dialogue, and it's all music. Yeah. So, I mean, it's a score that holds up. You can, anybody listening, anybody, just listen to the score if you haven't seen the movie. It's absolutely stunning. Uh, it's, it's also one of my favorites. So Yeah, yeah. Before we dig too deep into this movie, which, again, very excited to chat about uh, with you, I wanted to just uh, kind of get to know you a little bit, your background, how you got into costumes, all of that good stuff. So take us back to the beginning. And, you know, little Deborah, what was it that said, you know what, costumes, I think that's where I want to uh, gravitate <laughs> toward. That's a funny question. I think uh, I started very young being drawn to the cinema because my father was a big fan of movies. So he would take us on occasion to the drive-in, which no longer exists either, pretty much. He loved a Western. He loved John Wayne. He loved all those things. So we, you know, I started watching movies when I was quite young um, with him. And then I learned to sew very at a young age. And I think I was just drawn to costumes because of, of what it brings to a character. And I think a lot of the movies I really like have very strong, strongly drawn characters. So that was, that was one of the things I went through as I went through school, went through high school, I was in the drama department and I just, I thought I would move to California and, you know, who knows, maybe I would try acting, which was ridiculous. But the whole time I was doing theater, I would also be, oh, well, Deb can do the costumes because she can sew. Right. So I, uh, it, sure. it became a vernacular that I was really comfortable with. When I went to college, that's pretty much what I majored in, which, you know, and when you major in design, you're also get to include sets and makeup and hair, which I gravitate to as well. Now, that was pretty much it. And I met very fortunately, decided early on that I, I did a little theater stint, some Shakespeare festivals and things like that. And it was very clear that you weren't going to make a living doing that. <laughs> so, and I really wanted to do what I do full time. So I decided to try my hand at filmmaking. And I went to college with Charlie Martin Smith, who you may remember from the Buddy Holly story. And he introduced me through a couple of people. He was working on a film called Never Cry Wolf, which is also one of my favorite movies. And they found themselves in need of a costume designer or costume person at that time. So, you know, he suggested me and I got the job and I, that's how I really got started. That was my first really main, you know, I had done some low budget horror film stuff before that and a little bit of television, but that was my first, like what I felt legitimate movie. That which is a a a great start, definitely a film yeah. that stands out. I mean, it's a you know, it was one of those films that I remember as a kid, like my parents talking about because it was just something that um, they found so powerful. And so it's it's yeah. just one of those films that's kind of always been lingering around. And perhaps another film that isn't talked about as much yeah. these days, but certainly a film that is worth looking at and worth talking about for sure. Very much so. It's got a beautiful look to it. It's a very you know, intense character study as well. Yeah. And Carol Ballard's a wonderful, wonderful director. So Black Stallion, for example, you know, yep. <laughs> so, you yep. know, 
he's he's pretty he's pretty great um so i was lucky for that and then that that was a sort of jumping off point to meeting steven spielberg which was very in- incredibly lucky sure and i got hired i got hired to do et with him wow yeah a, an interesting uh journey now when you're jumping into like the mindset of of uh costume designer obviously there's the logistical side of it as far as like okay how many story days do we have how many outfits do i need for each of those story days for each of the characters who are seen on those days how many uh duplicate uh, outfits do i need because potentially stunts or you know blood splatters or whatever i mean there's all Mm -hmm. that logistic stuff that you obviously Mm -hmm. have to be dealing with but before you get to all that the logistical side, just when you're looking at the script and the story, like how do you start processing the ideas that you're going to bring for the characters? That's an interesting question. I think, you know, the more experience you have, the more you can sort of, you sort of double read, right? So you're at the same time thinking of the scope of the production as well as what, what you, your initial read on a script would be and because you read so many scripts that you may not get asked to do or that you may choose not to do right so the script read is really important in terms of does it speak to you personally like is there something about this that sparks something in you that you feel like i have something to contribute to this i can see myself developing these characters working with the actors you know at that time at the beginning you don't really usually know that who the actors might be but you're probably very aware of the director and you sort of decide, is it artistically something for me that speaks to me personally that I feel that I can absolutely say something? Which, and I think there's a really interesting uh, way of approaching that from something that, that involves a lot more kind of creative juices as far as, okay, how am I going to dress a Navi versus <laughs> something like, uh, the Upside of Anger, which is yeah. a straight-up family drama, uh, mm-hmm. beautiful film, but it's like there's nothing like you know outlandish about that story. It's just a you know a mom and her daughters and kind of this story. Mm-hmm. So in processing like that that wide scope of that, how do you how do you look at that? It's the characters that will speak to you. Sometimes it can be the genre, like something like an Avatar film. It may not be. You know, starting that movie, you wouldn't have an understanding necessarily of the characters per se, because it's such a bizarre process with the, with the, you know, to lack of a better term for the public animation of it. But it's still something where each character comes alive to me in some way. Do I like them? Do I not like them? And, and then quickly you transition because of my training and my, my, um, what I like to do is, you know, to say like, okay, well, what would, how do you visually see them? You know, what, what are the visual things that come to mind? It could be a color. It could be a, a pattern. It could be a, a bunch of different things. And then you, then I start to look at the, what the scope of the movie is. Is it a fantasy? Is it sci-fi? Is it a period piece? What period is it? What do I know about that period? So, you know, once you're sort of intrigued by the characters and what you as a costume designer can bring there, because it's really the visual language of how they exist on the screen, right? That, that a co- they don't, they're not just heads. They're like full, full on people, top to bottom. So I think the designer has a, an obligation to sort of 
get that right in terms of the narrative of the film, the desire of the director for the film, and then and the actors, of course. But and production design, it all works together. Like, what are you trying to say, and how are you going to say it? So you hope to get that correct. Um, and then I do usually do a very intense period of research, whether it be somebody that's an upside of anger, ordinary, you know, high school girl, because everybody has their story to tell. Every character has a place in time that they live and breathe that's important to illustrate visually. Then on top of that, it's, uh, you know, obviously some things may be built into the script and some of things are like, you're just kind of like, I'm just, I have to paint this entire picture of what this person looks like. And obviously there are conversations with the director. Uh, I mean, is it mostly the director you find yourself working with in that scope? Do you find yes. that in the scope of kind of the the overall look of the film, does the cinematographer, production design, does that end up influencing some of what you're thinking about as far as costumes? Yeah, I think they all influence it because you're telling the story together in different visual ways, you know, a cinematographer, a production designer, costume designer. But I think for me, it's absolutely the director and their vision because I come from a time, my, the beginnings of my career where the director is the head of the movie. And sometimes they're writer directors, which make them even more clued into what they're doing, right? That this is their vision and your job is to help them reach that. Some directors know a lot about what they want, you know, and some directors have absolutely no idea what they want, but they do know those people for the most part. Right. And then they, they cast them. So then they really get invested in those people. So that's a journey. And I think the director is absolutely the, um, he's just the leader of the entire circus for sure. And I think it, a good movie requires a strong director for sure. I think the way, if you look at even my list of films, but something like the mission that we're going to talk about, it's obviously very, very strongly directed. That's, I, I don't know if that's the right word to use, but it's incredibly cohesive from t beginning to end, from top to bottom. Sure. Just a few notes on, on some, some films that you have worked on in the past. Back to the Future is kind of a key one. Um, and I, I wonder, like Marty's uh, outfit, like particularly the vest, was that obviously there's a line involving that once he gets to the diner is that something mm -hmm. that was actually in the script or did you mm. like have that as part of his outfit and it ended up getting worked into the script isn't the line something like a life looks like a life yeah, preserver like, right something yeah. Like that. yeah or he says no. something about him being a sailor i can't remember yeah. <laughs> yeah. um i think i think in that particular case it wasn't written into the script so the idea being and i think this was where the writer's and the director and the costume designer really came together. You know, we came together as one. It's like, he needs to, that character needs to walk into that 1950s diner from the 80s at that point, very far right. in the future, yeah. <laughs> and, and make an impression, but also fit in, right? So, you know, I started to go through a long list. Okay, what, what do kids wear in the 50s? Jeans, sneakers shirts you know there's a lot of things that are similar so you could say okay well I'll put him in the shirt but the patterns may be different so it's odd but not odd enough for people to really notice 
right? He's wearing jeans that maybe, well, we didn't really have exactly that because there were only Levi's, but you know, so it wouldn't have been enough. It's not enough for a joke. It's barely enough to get noticed. So it was a lot of, uh, thought that went into <laughs> that. Um, and I think partially it might have been one day I was, you know, I knew it was coming and, and Bob, I remember Bob Gale specifically coming to me and saying, what can we, how can we make this funny? Right. What's the joke here? So to be able to contribute to the joke was uh, terrifying <laughs> and also really rewarding ultimately, because I think it was winter at that time. And I think, you know, I started to think about, oh my God, look at down coats. No one had, they didn't, that didn't exist in the fifties. Can we work that in? And then I think it was, it was a series of conversations where that was a really good kind of springing off point for the joke. And then it became like, what about orange? Right. Because maybe brown, no one would have noticed, but orange, you notice it. You don't notice it too much. It right, was a very right. popular color in the eighties. Everybody was wearing North face. So, uh, <laughs> you know, I think from then it was like, it felt really good to be able to sort of supply the visual that then that the joke could spring from. That's, that's so funny. What a, what a journey just to get to that, you know? Yeah, and, it was hard. It was harder. I have to say at the end when Chris Lloyd comes back from the future mm-hmm. and to try to decide, like, mm. remember that I remember them asking me at one point, like, but Deb, what are people going to wear in the future? Like <laughs> with all seriousness. And I was like, right. If I knew that, I could be very wealthy. <laughs> right. <laughs> I don't. I don't know. So that became more of a loosey goosey kind of joke and kind of silly. But yeah, the, right. Yeah, but the, With those the down, the down. Yeah, it was uh-huh. completely ridiculous, really. But they. <laughs> but it was more for show, right? It was going to be obvious when he and he does. You know, Chris Lloyd's like such a physically great actor, like springs out of the DeLorean, and he's yeah, right, right. Yeah, he looks like a madman. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, oh, that's so that funny. Fun. What about when you're working on a film that has a lot of technical aspects involved in the characters? Uh, thinking specifically of something like Heat, where you've got detectives, you've got criminals who obviously, like the bank heist, for example, they they know all the, the right gear to be wearing for a bulletproof vest and all that st- sort of stuff. How much of that do you have play with as far as I'm going to redesign the look of the bulletproof vests or is it more, these are great bulletproof vests. I'm going to work them into what they're wearing underneath. Like how, how, how do you involve the technical side of that? Yeah. Well, that's an, an unusual, a little bit of an unusual case because Michael Mann, who also was on my list, he's a brilliant filmmaker, very, very strong, completely, you know, dedicated director and who isn't excited to see his new film. I am. Mm, uh, but <laughs> he's right. No kidding. So, uh, but in that case, I mean, he's a, a stickler for precision, Michael. So we had a, a, a few technical advisors, right? Military, SAS, as you know, like all these, like the, the, a detective from Los Angeles. So there were people that I could go to and he wanted it to be completely accurate. So there was no, there was going to be no redesigning. There was going to be nothing. It was like, how do you make this work? You know, does he want to see the vest or not see the vest? That's a, you know, little thing. You know, he's a, he's a complete stickler for precision and choices, Michael. So everything is very well considered. So you might bring him 
like at the beginning when they're they're dressed they, they're in the ambulance right they're supposed to be ambulance drivers michael gives me the brief and then it would had to be this particular color well we dyed many versions of that particular color <laughs> many and like within it very low, you know, very, very narrow range of that color minty green and till if there was one that he liked, right? So that wow. might, that might be a case where maybe he did call in the cinematographer and say, you know, considering the lighting that day it's outdoors, it's daytime, the inside of the, what the ambulance, like he goes through all those steps. So he's uh, very demanding in that way. And I think it really gives you the task of, okay, how are we going to do this? How are we going to make it just right for you? Because that's what his brain is telling him. He's the director. He helped write that project. So very, very, con- very, very considerate of the characters of each one and how they might dress. So to that end, is your room for play, we'll, we'll call it, more outside of their work? Like when it's like Robert De Niro hanging out at his house or... Or things like that, or, or Pacino back in his in his place with his family, things like that. That's where you have a little more give, as far as I, like. I think so, but I think there's a in that movie, in that film, there's a a very very narrow kind of hallway that they walk that these characters walk in. Right? They don't go. You don't see them very much relaxing. <laughs> <laughs> right. They're always on. <laughs> They're always on. They're always intense. They're always very much focused ahead. So it was really a matter in that case of, you know, talking to Michael and sort of discussing the characters, the casting was incredibly important, really painted these characters, you know, how De Niro wanted to play his guy and Pacino and, you know, the intensity and the dedication that they have as actors, which brings a whole other kind of energy to your choices. Sure. Yeah. And Michael had done enough research on his own that he was, he felt that a a character like De Niro coming out of prison would be the kind of person who, because prisoners and his, this prisoner, in his opinion, was a very, very precise man, very clean, very neat, very pressed. You, you know, he doesn't have a wrinkle at all. His hair is always perfect. You know, he looks, he's got it, right? It's like he's not, there's nothing left to chance. And on top of it, he's kind of uh, camouflaged a gray suit, a white shirt, just, you, you, you just, it goes to the background. Like you don't notice it. It disappears and in his own quiet way. So, uh, we went through and I am not kidding because we didn't, we didn't build his suit. We, we, it was a lot of purchasing on that show, not a lot of building. And I think we went through about a hundred suits, maybe more to find just the right gray one. Wow. Yeah, so he, and you can see his same, what was the film he did with Tom Cruise after that? Collateral. Yeah, can you see, if you look at those two characters side by side, uh-huh. it's the yeah. same formula. Yeah, you're right. Right, it's the same, it's the same kind of guy, gray suit, white shirt. Mm-hmm. Yep, very much plays into both of those characters. Mm-hmm. It's interesting. Yeah. Last one that I want to kind of chat about as far as, uh, I mean, you, you've got a very robust filmography. There are a lot of uh, movies uh, to talk about, a lot of ones that I certainly love, a lot of filmmakers that it just, I mean, you've worked with so many amazing filmmakers. But I already mentioned um, the Navi and Avatar. And just in the scope of, I, I just want to kind of get a little sense of 
how the working style changes for you when you're working on a film like let's talk about most recently avatar way of water when so many of the characters are being digitally created uh, i mean you're still manufacturing actual outfits mm-hmm. but like where does that come into play because i mean and again this is you know my understanding of of filming these but like the actors are are doing the whole little motion capture performances mm-hmm. and so when do those costumes actually how how do they end up getting integrated into the production well the process of working on a film like that which is a you know highly technical is there, it's like the, the answer to that question is kind of twofold in that you had this incredibly new world, right? All this technology, all this, you know, all this ways of making different things happen and visually making things happen. And then you have old school. How do you make it happen? How does it really happen? And Jim is, you know, he rides both of those waves completely. So the decision very early on, even sort of halfway through the first film, which I came in on, and then definitely in film two, and now we're doing post for film three, that we were to make every single garment, every single bracelet, every single prop, every single wig, every single thing. And in some cases, you use it to inform the actor's uh, performance capture, because They've never worn it. You know, if you've never worn a loincloth, you might walk around differently than you do in a pair of jeans, right? So Fair point, yeah. <laughs> that's simple. That's a, that's a very simplistic kind of one for one. So there, there is that. And we do a lot of that. And we do a lot of reference with the garment because the garments are made for human scale. So humans can wear them, not the nine foot tall Navi character. So the motion reference so that a computer can then later understand, well, that's a very strangely constructed thing. It's not a blouse. We know our computer programs know what a bl- how a blouse moves or how jeans crease, but we don't understand that, right? We don't know what that is. So you're giving them motion reference for a real thing that kind of they don't know what it is until <laughs> they get it, right? So the, if you think in the mind of, wow. of a computer, right, you're like, I don't. I don't think I've never seen that before, and which is the whole point of those costumes is that they're unique, bespoke, one of a kind. You couldn't even, you almost literally can't duplicate them physically. That's how complicated they are. So having said that, I think the biggest thing for me, the, the biggest thing that it gives the movie, the biggest visual plus that making those costumes gives to that movie is that the computers can then and the artists who use them, right? Because there's a lot of human beings involved in making those garments in real life and making those garments in the virtual world. Digitally, yeah. Right. right. So it takes a lot of different kinds of talent. But if you hand them a very intricately woven with beads and little rocks and little pieces of thread, even as something as simple as an armband, you know, one inches by four inches, the computer can then scan that. They're, I'm, I'm using the word computer, which is probably not at all right, right? <laughs> <laughs> their, 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 their equipment can scan that image and they read it absolutely like a, it's a roadmap. It becomes a texture map and that way they can duplicate it or replicate it perfectly. 
where you can't do that from a drawing because you can't even draw those costumes, right? Our drawings are very conceptual. The pieces are very intricately thought out and, and created. So from a drawing, the technology would then say, oh, I think it's this swirly, swirly line, say, or, but when you give them a really woven thing, they can say, oh, that's 16 knots shaped in a circle. Again, a very simplistic kind of thing. But you, so the, the ability to supply that texture map for the, the vi- virtual world is extremely important, especially when you want to make costumes that are that um, complex. Yeah. Wow. I, I mean, it just boggles my mind when I think about that. Cause I, I, you know, reading through your bio, I was like, it's amazing that they made all those costumes. But as you describe it to me, I'm like, well, yeah, it, it makes sense. It makes perfect sense because that gives the computer the model that it can then pattern all of that af- off. That's of right. That's right. When, when it's the it actual thing, right? It's the real thing. It's not a guess. It's not a drawing. It's not an interpretation. There's no interpreting it. It's that. It's that very, very fine thing. Well, and as you talked about that, the actors understanding what it feels like moving around in a loincloth. Also, I would imagine just it's something that informs their performance as far as like, okay, I have a better sense as to I can get more, get myself more into the head of my Navi character mm-hmm, mm-hmm. because I'm wearing this outfit, even if I don't That's have a right. tail and I'm not nine feet tall and all that That's sort right. of stuff. So, That's yeah. right. And it affects a- actors, different actors in different ways. You know, and our producer John Landau always would cite the sample, the example of a that uh, Sigourney Weaver's character Kiri wears a shawl, and she wears it kind of for protection, right? Not not physical pr- protection, but more like emotional. So it's her emotional support shawl, as we, yeah. <laughs> but to, you know, so the way she moves with it and handles it, you have to capture that. You know, the shrug of her shoulders, the hunch of her back, whatever it is that how she when she puts that on is then transferred to the performance, to the capture, to the virtual world. It's amazing. Yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty complicated. It's, it's kind of a whole new, it's definitely a whole new world, a whole new world for me, for sure. Yeah, right. No kidding. I mean, it's, it's, it's almost like taking, taking everything to the next step. It's like the digital evolution of costume making. And I'm just like, it's just, it's fascinating yeah. that, that it's going there. Yeah, but the real, the really essence of it is this incredible digital world of costume making and filmmaking, but it's based on the absolute, absolute ancient craft of making something with your hands. Right. Yeah. Uh, it goes directly from the most rudimentary way of expressing art to the most technological way of expressing art. Try to get AI to do that, right? Yeah. Can't do it. Can't do it. They can't do it. Nope, not at all. Not at all. Oh. <laughs> it takes real. It takes a lot of really talented people for sure. Yeah, I'm, yeah absolutely. Yeah, I'm a lucky. I'm a lucky person that way. I know a lot of really talented people that work with me. So, sure. How big was your team on on Way of Water? Mm, I think it probably at its biggest, not con- including the set crew. You know, the it, probably yeah. around forty people. Okay, I mean, know, that's substantial. Still, that's, yeah, that's big. Yeah, definitely, yeah. definitely mm-hmm. big size. Yeah. Well, it shows your work shows. I mean, through not just that film, but really all of it, just the oh, the, uh, the great work you do. I also just have to I have to call out something that 
funny enough, has been burned into my head since I watched this movie in the mid-80s because, I don't know, it's just a really funny scene. It's probably completely inappropriate <laughs> by today's standards, <laughs> but I have never stopped laughing at the moment in Armed and Dangerous with uh, John Candy and Eugene Levy when they sneak into the, the little smut shop and <laughs> they exchange the clothes with those uh, the two, uh, uh, the, the one in drag and the other guy, and then they're just... <laughs> walking out well one of the funniest things yeah it's so when you work with <laughs> when you work with comedians of that you know level like very funny people it 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 couldn't make your job easier it's de- they're demanding in the best of ways yeah. you know so and they bring it man so you're like huh? about this idea and it's like yes <laughs> <laughs> so yeah it was pretty it was pretty funny that's funny. Oh. I'm surprised that you would mention that. That's, that's an obscure film. Very obscure. It's totally obscure, but it, like John Candy dressed in that red dress with a giant white wig, and then Eugene Levy in that like black leather outfit with, with those like butt exposed mm. butt cheeks. Yeah, it's I know. just like it's, I laughed so hard when I was a kid, and I still think it's one of the funniest things. So that's a that's a good that's a that movie's a good example of you know you that movie. I think if I look back on it, I decided to do that movie because like oh my god comedy legends of course you're gonna say sure. yes right yeah, yeah. That, i mean let's do it <laughs> so <laughs> absolutely yeah absolutely crazy it's great seeing eugene levy like having like this total career resurgence in the last like few decades just like it's amazing how how uh, popular he is in circles so i'm just a, like it thrills me to know and dana carvey was in it I mean, yeah. you know they're, they're i mean yeah comedy legends for sure it's yeah. it's a shame we lost john candy that's oh, for sure. i know so tragic mm-hmm. well let's shift gears uh as as fun as it is talking to you about uh everything that you've been up to uh let's talk about this film roland joffe's 1986 uh film the mission little in this world unfolds as we predict Indeed, how could the Indians have supposed that the death of this unsung priest would bring among them a man whose life was to become inextricably intertwined with their own? Tell them. They must leave the mission. They say it was the will of God that they came out of the jungle and built the mission. They don't understand why God has changed his mind. Never become a priest. But I am a priest and they need me. If you die with blood on your hands, you betray everything we've done. If might is right, and love has no place in the world. beauty an age of conquest the laws of heaven the way of the world the lives in the balance Now, from the director. 
director of The Killing Fields comes this year's winner of the Best Picture Award at the Cannes Film Festival. The Mission. First, what is it about this particular film that uh, that draws you to it so much? Well, I think it's an incredible example of a bunch of different stuff. But the first one being incredibly well-drawn characters. They're so well done from, I mean, the writing is amazing. The acting is beyond the directing, but the characters are so beautifully drawn. The story of what happens to those men individually and together is extremely powerful for me. And when I I remember very well going to the theater and saying, okay, what's this all about? You know, let's just check this out. Great cast who's, you know, sat down in my seat. The movie starts, the credits are quiet. There's not a sound. And then slowly that music comes in, right? It's the voiceover, which I'm not even sure how that relates to the script, particularly if that was an afterthought or it probably was, was not because it seems so appropriate. Right. But that when that music starts, you are in it. You are in that movie. It is evocative. It stirs your soul. I said to myself, I sat in my seat and I said, oh yeah, this is, this is going to be a great movie. You can tell in the first five minutes, this is going to be a great movie. So my, my story with this film, I, I didn't see it when it was out in theaters. Um, it, came to me a few years later. Um, I was, uh, when I was in high school, I studied Spanish and I ended up in this, um, uh, this program called Amigos de las Americas, which is where high school kids go to Latin America and they work in a rural community over a summer and do uh, health work and community work and stuff like mm -hmm. that. And I did it for a couple summers, but the first summer that I was getting ready to go do that, as we were all like over the course of the school year, you know, we were always having trainings and stuff like that. And we would get together in one of the movies that we ended up renting and watching. We're always like, what are some movies that kind of tie into where we're going to be going and all this sort of stuff. And this was one of those movies that um, somebody brought and I watched it and, and it just, I was thrilled to no end because that first year I went to, to Paraguay. So I was like right in this area where all of this story is taking place. Fantastic. I was in a rural community community where a lot of the people were like descendants of the Guarani. And to top it all off, then, you know, we took a, a break in the middle of our time there and we went to Iguazu Falls and we got to kind of tour oh. around that whole area, which was still just like one of the top uh, experiences in my life. And so just being there doing health work in this world where so much of this film took place. Oh, and the town I was living in had an old Jesuit, like a mission actually mm. in, in the place there that was actually being restored at the time. And like, we would go with the people that we were staying with and we would go to mass on Sundays in this old Jes Jesuit mission. And so it just like, my mind was like, so in this movie, um, well, when I watch it and then it's, you know, I've continued watching it over the years and I just always am drawn to the story of these people. And just, I, I find that it's aside from my, my excitement and passion for like this part of the world and, and exploring a story like this and the music and everything like that, just, I find that there is such interesting complexities within the story about the idea of 
you know, what was going on in the world at the time as far as like the Spanish and the Portuguese battling over territory and who was going to get to claim this area and can we get rid of the mission so that we can get more of these uh, Guarani to be slaves and, and jump into our slave trade and all that sort of stuff. And, and, and then you're also getting like this whole side of like religion and the way that the religious system was set up paired with faith. And, you know, Jeremy Irons character, Gabriel so much represents faith in the community, in the people, in uh, just kind of like that uh, being authentic and, allowing the people to be who they are, whereas the church is so tied into the politics. And I found that to be such an interesting um, exploration in the film that, uh, for me, when I first saw this, uh, I found to be such a kind of an eye-opening thing that it's just like, I don't know, kind of looking at this side of of the way that kind of the politics of the church and, and how all this stuff uh, yeah. plays out. I, it's, it's a very interesting element to the whole story. Yeah, it's fascinating. It's also, you know, taking history, any movie that is, you know, can can kind of beckon back to a time in history that's accurate and real, whether it's dramatized or not you know, is, is eye-opening. It's a, it's almost like you have to watch it, right? You're, you should watch it. It's more, probably even more useful than reading about it. And it's a story that these so complex, like you're saying, with all these different parts of the world interacting and crossing paths and what does it mean for the indigenous peoples of that country and how, how, how are the Jesuits going to deal with the church? And how is, you know, are you know, Spain going to deal with Portuguese? It's so complex in terms of politics, religion, and, and human beings that it's fascinating how it, the story unfolds and, and it holds you there. Because the complexity of it is, you know, you can't escape it. You can't ex- escape the, the drama that it brings to your own soul. You can't ex- escape the, the sadness, the relief, the, uh, there's so many emotions. Like you, I cry through that movie, like nobody's business, you know, either you're just moved to happiness or you can't believe this horrible thing that you just saw. And not in a gratuitous, a gratuitous way at all. Not at all. It seems absolutely realistic. And, I think the filmmakers did an amazing job just in all of it, right? The, the, the production design and the, the use of those falls. And I know the Guarani people lived in and around there, but those, right. the visual, the sound of the falls, the, the power of it just is like a, it's, it's such a symbol of kind of what is to come, what has happened. You know, faith can be huge. So can, so can a government. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> so, you know, all these things kind of battling it out and how nature kind of was the, uh, where you, it points to, right? It shows you in nature what's going to happen in the world almost. So the production design is amazing. Finding those, those locations, rewatching the movie again, I, I was like, oh my God, can you imagine being on that film crew? It must have been brutal. <laughs> I can't, yeah, right. It's been brutal. The yeah. bug bites alone. I mean, that, you know, the physical being it hot, the physical, I, I kept thinking, man, there must have been a lot of visits to the set nurse and doctor. You know, there's no way 
Yeah, just watching watching the scenes where uh, you know inevitably they're using some stunt people to like scale the 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 wall beside the the falls. But there are some shots where the camera is close enough. I'm like, that really looks like Jeremy Irons, like on the side of this hill with nothing holding him here. What is going on here? Yeah, it's it's crazy, and I think that that decision alone. And I'd love to have known how they made some of these decisions, but the decision alone to put that, you know, Jeremy Irons' performance is unbelievable. He's like the simplest man with the, the biggest heart and the, and the most expansive mind, right? So he's got, he's, and he's out there in the elements, one slender <laughs> young man <laughs> scaling that mountain yeah. at peril in every step, right? So is that the journey of his life? Yeah. Is that what he was doing that day? Yes. It's big and small. Yeah. Talk about being present when you're oh actually performing, right? It's like, you're like, oh my God, oh my God. You just want to close your eyes <laughs> and you can feel it and you can hear, you know, the music and the, and again, I mean, I could go back to the sequences where there's no dialogue that you, you don't need it. You don't need them to translate the language. Mm-mm. Yeah. You know, they don't waste it. They wasted no time. It's a brilliant screenplay. Yeah, that's a, actually a really interesting point. Speaking to the Guarani and the the nature of the the people that you know this story centers around. That you know, there's certainly an argument to be made about like the side of the missions and were they actually doing anything good by the work that they were they were doing. And I think the film kind of touches on that a little mm-hmm. bit. Um, but the the way that it portrays these people, and I, I, my understanding from reading up on it, it was actually a group of uh, people from Colombia that the director had found. Like he, Roland Jaffe, went into this script saying, "I can't do this story if it's just about a bunch of white men. I, I want to make sure that, it, that it's centered on the tribe." And so. Robert Bolt, who wrote it, was just like, well, good luck. <laughs> and so, so Roland was like, well, okay, I got to go down there and find some people. And he ended up in Colombia and found a group, um, a, a, a tribe in a few communities who they ended up flying this whole group. He was the first white man that, that they had ever seen. Doesn't surprise me. Yeah, and and their understanding of white people were that they were they were bad. They were people who would come and take you away. And that was essentially all they knew about white people. But he kind of... He talked to them about it and and told them about the story and and they agreed to be a part of it and they for the first time they all went and hopped on a plane and they all flew down to to the falls and to film around kind of you know the Iguazu Falls are right there on the border between Brazil and Argentina and to kind of like film in that area and then they did a lot of filming also in in Colombia but um, but capturing this what feels like like an authentic group of people who we don't need to translate it as you said like we're experiencing it from essentially kind of like that outsider perspective of hearing them in their their native tongue and just watching them doing things and we can understand and that's what's so amazing about like just the way that uh, Jaffe decided to not give us subtitles for everything they say, we can still understand what they're saying, their actions. Yeah, you don't need it. You do not need it. You're so, you're so, it becomes so clear what's going on that, and I think that's a really, uh, I, I bet you wouldn't be able to get away with that now, right? This is the studios would be like, no way, you're not just sort of leaving out. <laughs> but this, the dialogue is spare all along. But the fact that you don't get that translation, I think I thought was an incredibly strong and brilliant move on his part. And I think the auth- 
authenticity. I've done a lot of research with indigenous peoples around the world. And that authenticity, I think, is absolutely key. You 100% believe it. The costumes are great. The makeup's great. All of it's great. The casting's great. All of it's great. And that it's very interesting to me as these indigenous peoples around the world, which is also the sad statement of the film, right? That they're disappearing yeah. in right, our world, right. right? But that that la- the language that the Guarani speak is huge. It's That's what's survived now to this day. I find that amazing. Kind of doesn't have anything to do with the movie, but it does have to do with like some things can last, right? Some things can the movie in general, the arc of it is like, it's the story of power versus nature of power versus normal people that every single country that has ever moved into, you know, everybody has committed those crimes. Yeah. You know, all the powers of the world have committed those crimes and whether they did it as harshly or less harshly, it doesn't matter. We're all, all of civilization is guilty of what happened there. Yeah. Because it's happened every, it's happened everywhere. It happens everywhere. And that is, that's one of the, the powers of the film. That's the, the biggest takeaway that it's not just, you know, and Robert McAnally, his last line (sighs) where he said, I just, it, it kills you, you know? Like we did this, right? I can't remember his, and thus something, I can't remember his exact words. Yeah, I, I wrote it down. He, cause, cause the, he's talking to the Portuguese, um, uh, uh, person who says, we must work in the world. The world is thus. And then he says, no, thus have we made the world. Thus have I made it. Thus have I. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's like killer. I mean, yeah. Just killer right there. Well, and, and then, I mean, have you stayed through the end of the credits with this one? Mm-hmm. Where that, he looks, oh, I mean, like just like he's like right into your soul, right? It's like, just I'm like, so guilty. Yeah, we're all we're all guilty. We're all guilty. You know, I can't help it that I was born a white girl. You know, that's not my <laughs> fault. But I am also in by just by the nature of life, we are all guilty. Yeah, you know, Robert McAnally's performance uh, just spectacular. There, and it's a simple performance, but just like. As you see him evolving from the start of the film where it just really feels like he is very much the voice of the church, but it's like once you get to that place where he's actually doing the tour and he's going from mission to mission, all along knowing the decision that he has to make, but still... Like when he has that final conversation with Jeremy Irons, you know, just, uh, you know, saying I, I, I came here because I was hoping to, you know, I wanted to make sure that I found the way to tell you. I can't remember his words in that particular yeah. scene. But but again, it's just, yeah. Heartbreaking. And it's amazing how I, I think even I've watched it so many times, but the portion of that where he's going on the tour, right? He goes, take me to these places. And he. Jeremy Irons takes him to one after another and he sees all these beautiful things and hears this beautiful singing and, you know, how, how, how much these, this culture was in invested in music and musical instruments and all that. And you know that there's that moment where for me, I still want to go, he's not gonna, he's gonna, he's gonna change his mind, you know, that you're very convinced that what's going to come out is he's going to change his mind. He's going to save these people. And he doesn't. Yeah. But you can still, it's so well directed in that seat, that part of the movie that you're convinced 
that. He, spoiler alert, if anyone hasn't seen it. But <laughs> you, know, <laughs> right. you're, you're, you go along, you're so there emotionally with what is happening that I found myself hoping each and every time that the outcome will be different. Well, that's that scene where he is with the, the, the Portuguese guy and they're like outside at night under a tree and he brings him that letter from the king or whoever. Yeah, about, I don't need and, to read it. Yeah, I don't need to read yeah. it. And that's just like that scene right there. It's like that was that point where he's just like he you can tell that he's pretty upset at the decision that he's now going to have to make. And that was essentially the decision right there getting made for him. Like he knows what he has to do. That's right. But just the way that he plays that, I mean, he's, he's, he does the role of that religious figure, like political slash religious figure in a, in, in a perfect way, kind of carrying the balance of all of that. Like he's never exuding anger or anything like that, but you can tell it's, I mean, it's a frustrating situation. It's a frustrating decision that he essentially is has to make. Yeah, and you find yourself at the, you know, you're, you're, all of those characters, you follow along with them. You become them, right? So you can identify with that, that feeling and you've either done it or seen it or, you know, where the powers that be are not going to allow you to do anything but even if you don't want to. So it can happen on a very small scale with human beings on a large scale or an enormous scale. But even on a day-to-day basis where you're like, I'm sorry, I have to say no. I really would like to say yes. We, we understand that as human beings, like when we are powerless, right? He's, he's a huge figure, but he's powerless ultimately. And it crushes him. And you see that in the end. And you also feel his guilt and it becomes your guilt. It doesn't hurt to sidebar that the movie is absolutely filled, not only with great actors, but are they handsome or what? Let's get real. <laughs> Liam ne- little baby-faced Liam yeah. Neeson, oh, Aiden and, Quinn. And, Aiden Quinn. Yeah. And, and, I mean, De Niro, his performance is just beyond. Jeremy Irons, young Jeremy Irons, before he got, you know, to his scary different roles where he scared you now forever. Um, <laughs> you know, they're just, they're just such, they're just, they're, it's as if the director said to them, okay, you guys got to go into this with the most open of hearts. You're going to believe everything that you need to do. 100%, right? They're so, you look into their eyes, you look into their soul. And the way it is shot is, I mean, Chris Menges is a, brilliant cinematographer all of his work is i mean from there's not one thing he's ever shot that isn't amazing so the fact that he can work in that environment and be probably the best natural lighter ever like ever and choosing the angles that they chose where you know when when de niro just there's times where you just like, oh my God, you just, you feel their pain, even though they're not looking at you, you know, what's happening when he, after he kills his brother and he's looking down and it, Ugh, there's that yeah. dolly zoom thing. It's just so again, no words, very little dialogue, very little dialogue between the three, Aiden Quinn, the, I don't want to say girlfriend and then, and De Niro. Cause it's the story of those brothers, right? The brothers. Sherry Lung- Lungi, Lungi oh, yeah. Car- as Carlotta. Yeah. Yeah. Carlotta. That was a character. So spare. Like, watch it again and see how they don't talk about it. You know they've talked about it, but they're not going to talk about it in front of us. It's a really interesting sequence. And, you know, sometimes there are films where you watch and you have a a story element like that, kind of a beeline. 
that feels very thin and you're like, I'm not getting enough. It's, it's interesting how this one, the way that the script is, as you said, like they're not saying all of these things here, but we're getting everything out of it. Like I, I didn't feel like I missed anything. I didn't feel like they shortchanged that story thread at all. I still feel like I'm getting everything I needed to really understand where uh, Mendoza is at that particular moment after he gets so you know, angry to the point where he kills his own brother. I mean, it's, mm-hmm. but that dialogue between he and Carlotta, like you don't miss at all that she's, that she's going to now be nervous and say to him, Oh, I have something to tell you. And I'm going to tell you this and tells him, no, forget all that. Even if they did shoot it, which I doubt they did, but you never know where he picks up that scene when he just turns to him and says, Felipe, you know, like, you know, everything that's gone down. You know everything, and you can see it in his heart and his eyes and his, you know, it's really, really. And that, again, like the most dialogue in any scene is that scene with Jeremy Irons and and uh, De Niro in the jail, in the when they're inside the monastery or wherever they are, where he's in. They have that incredible scene together where he says, you killed your brother. Yeah, you are laughable. I mean, it's brilliant writing so strong beautifully portrayed too by both of the actors and and that leads to you know one of i i I would say probably one of the one of the iconic out of many iconic scenes in the film but it's like the penance scene when de niro he (laughs) he ties all of his everything from his past essentially into that net and is dragging it all the way up to the top of the falls and just like watching him go through that and then it's like such a challenging scene to watch because we're right there with Liam Neeson's character, like who is so frustrated. It's like, just cut like, it off. And just, you go, You're fine. You've done enough. You don't need to keep going. But, and then, yeah. and then when you, and, and you, so you're right there with all that frustration and then you can see how much it's obviously has affected him when he, after uh, Liam Neeson's character cuts the rope and then he goes back down goes and ties back and it back it. up and pull, yeah. It. Cause he's and not then, done. He's not done. You don't need to know. He doesn't say anything. De Niro says virtually nothing. Nope. Through that whole, it's a long sequence. It is. Again, the music is incredible. It's shot incredibly. Yeah. You feel for all of them and you know exactly where they're coming from. And when Jeremy Irons has to say to, to Liam Neeson, like, you know what? Uh, uh, he's, I'm not going to help him. This isn't, this is not how it, you know, this isn't the way, whatever his exact words are, but. And then when he gets to the, it's Ugh. an it's excruciating to watch him climb. It's the biggest allegory done so beautifully that I've ever seen in a movie. Um, and when he gets to the top and what happens with him and indigenous people is just, I can, I can barely speak about it. I'll start crying. It, I mean, you know, it, it is. Yeah. It, it ties the whole story together. Yeah, it's, it is one of just like my favorite scenes because mm-hmm. you see that person recognizes, I mean, first of all, there's kind of that threat, but then it's just like, no, this, he's, you know, we accept him and they cut the rope, toss it over the falls and just watching his face as he, oh. as he accepts it. Now I'm going to start crying as he accepts, <laughs> as he accepts. You can't not, you can't <laughs> not. It's like the people he's offended the most have now forgiven him so he can forgive himself. And you don't need to say it. No one says it. Yeah. It just happens in front of your eyes and you see him break down when Jeremy Irons comes and holds him. (laughs) (laughs) Right. And then he starts laughing. Yeah. 
And, and just like just, the, the uh. you've never seen a, I, I, I would dare anyone to, you know, email me with a more cathartic scene than that ever yeah. in any right. movie. The, the, the expression on De Niro's face is like, Ugh. there's so much release in it. Like just the, the joy of, of like being free and like, you know, getting through that. And it just, I mean, it really. Unbelievable. Whew, yeah. It's intense. I mean, I kicked myself every time I've worked with De Niro. I've worked with Liam Neeson. I've worked with Aiden Quinn and I never was, <laughs> I didn't, I did not have the wherewithal to ask them about that movie it kills me i would have loved to have heard just a snippet yeah i'm sure it was the hardest thing to do in the whole wide world i'm sure it was beyond hard i listened to a little bit of the director's track and he's talking about when that like through that whole pennant scene when he's doing it he's it's all barefoot and stuff and he's just like de niro was he was determined to do it that way there were scorpions and snakes spiders everywhere i was like (laughs) I'm Good sure the insurance on that film. <laughs> right. <laughs> there, there and where comes the uh, med- the doctors and the nurses on set, you know? Yeah, right. Uh, and, and Jeremy Irons, you know, that all those vows that the Jesuit priests make, and there couldn't be a more pure of soul person who's not the slightest bit trite, by the way. Like, the, there is nothing, he, and he's barefoot the entire movie. He never puts on a pair of shoes because I'm sure that was one of his vows. But, uh, yeah, it's a killer. It's, it's not a pick me up that movie, but it's so wonderful and cathartic. And so it, you will never regret watching it. It's an interesting ending to the film because you're right. It's a, it's a heartbreaking end to the film, but at the same time, we do get some children at the very end that they come back to the village after it's been burned and destroyed by the soldiers and they're collecting little bits and pieces and everything. And you do get this sense as they kind of find these pieces, hop in the boat and, and kind of journey back into the jungle that Mm. there might be a future for them. I mean, we kind of um, sadly know where that future right. leads to, but still. Yeah. You have to believe that they, again, you believe that they believe it. And for the director to put that in there, I think he had to, right? You have to, you had like cut me a little bit of slack. It's an audience member. I'm destroyed, right? But you have to, you have to know. And I think it's, and it's not, again, it's not contrived at all because life does go on. People find a way, you know, communities of people find a way, and it speaks to the strength of religion without being religious, community, it speaks to the good in people, the evil in people, and it it never trivializes it, but it doesn't, it it doesn't, it's never, it's not a fantasy at all either, right? It's so real. Right. Yeah. It's stunning. It's a stunning piece of work all the way around. I don't know, you uh, know, the sets. Yeah. I mean, my God, locations. Ugh. Everything. Every, I mean, honestly, it's just, it's, it's a fantastic piece of filmmaking. Uh, this film did get, as, as we said, it, it had seven, I think, Oscar nominations. Um, it only ended up winning uh, cinematography, which fair there. Um, it lost to Platoon for director and picture. It lost to, uh, this was always surprises me just because I love the score so much, but it, the, the score, uh, it lost to Round Midnight. And uh, editing also lost to Platoon. 
And uh, art direction and costume design, and I did want to ask you a little bit about this. They lost to A Room with a View. Um, this film, you know, the costumes are spectacular in this film. Um, it was uh, Enrico Sabatini who did the costumes here. Um, but where do you stand on that as far as uh, A Room with a View versus this? Both period pieces. Yeah. I mean, I would, and I think Room with a View is beautiful. It's beautifully done. Such a great film. Mr. Beeb. Yeah, it's, it, you know, I think also like you're looking back on a year this year in terms of nominations in general, like a lot of competition. And now it feels like we can, you know, they, we have 10, we, now we have 10 films that you can barely eke out four that are of caliber, <laughs> right? This is just like intense all the way down. Like, oh my God, what would you vote for? You know, it's crazy. But in, I think, I think it's also a time when, I think probably you could probably ch- fact check me here, but I'm guessing Room with a View was more popular, made more money. Probably. Perhaps. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It's, it's a lot more a- a- accessible to people. I mean, I would vote for the mission a hundred percent because it's very hard to do that. It's very minimal. So maybe, but it's not at all. You know, you think of those carnival scenes and those really, you know, the, all yeah, the yeah. stuff that happens with that. Is there are a lot of people in that movie? It had to have been a logistical nightmare to pull off, you know, where you, I'm sure they had brought all the costumes in from, from Italy. Um, he's a very good designer, but I think that it's just people love a popular movie. They love a nice movie and they, it was the, sort of the heyday and it still continues but the of, of of the british drama and all the romance of that being important to the academy to audiences you see that time and time again so i don't regret that room of the view one i just think i think this work is harder to do and very spot on too very uh, well and you know that's a trick because i wonder uh, you might know more than I, but in especially when you're recreating period pieces, you know, for for people thinking about the movie, do they think, well, it was just it was really authentic. It didn't feel like they were really doing any, you know, magic with it or creating, you know, their own costumes. It just felt authentic. And I suppose you could say that with Room with a View too. But it's like the big dresses and stuff like that. Yeah. It just feels more flowery and yeah, it's pretty. Yeah. Yeah. It's pretty. It's glamorous. It's got a lot. There's a lot to it right? It's, it's the, the work shows on the face of it. It's not, it's not something you have to discover kind of, I think to take, you know, trying to bring a, in terms of the indigenous people, trying to bring a culture to life that wasn't until even recently, well, obviously well photographed, right? You have, you don't have much reference for what that authenticity is. Digging into that and drilling down in that and making it look as good as he did, I think is a remarkable achievement. And I think that all of them, I mean, you know, it's like the fact that those, the Portuguese and the, the Spanish and they, and they're all, you know, the 1750s, the garb, the early 1800s, wearing all those clothes into that, into that, you know, just, jungle you right. the humidity Hot, alone. but what people did wearing the wigs where you know it's it again it gives you this incredible vi- uh visual of the two different parts of civilization absolutely colliding with the jesuits somewhere in the middle just they're just somewhere in the middle stuck right in the middle of it all yeah, yeah. and they're they're close i mean jeremy irons like the aging i you know i'm always like 
look at everything. It's like the aging alone on his garment is so well done. It's so beautiful. It looks absolutely, everything looks so real that that's hard to do. So maybe reality doesn't necessarily win over fancy or popular. Yeah, which, you know, I, as you said, I mean, I, I, probably a, a trend in the, in the industry. And I, you know, I, I think there's always these trends. Like I, I, you know, you know, as an outsider, we would always hear, oh, it's always the period piece that wins. It's not going to be a fantasy costume that'll win. It'll be a period piece, you know, and I, you know, I think that there are exceptions to that rule, but it's, you know, I, I think that. Few and these, far between. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right, right, mm-hmm. right. And even like uh, as a recipient myself, it's like Titanic was a period that was very, very glamorous. And yeah, it was a very popular film. So, you know, you can make a case that no matter who designed it, they would have won. Right. It's it's just it's like the it fits right in the pocket. It's perfect. I think the fact that people still, to me, remember the costumes like they're not just because I don't remember. You know, I'll like the next year, I'll be like, what was the, you know, you remember the idea <laughs> of the costumes, but you yeah. may not re- remember the costume. So that's very gratifying, but truly it's a, you know, there is that popularity part of the awards. There's an interesting element in this just triggered in the way that you were saying that but i think there's also a way that the directors know how to use those costumes because it could be simply that hat reveal of kate winslet (laughs) that won you that oscar (laughs) that that was an amazing scary that was a very scary day (laughs) yeah well (laughs) well yeah yeah, yeah. you want to hear a tiny little story before i'm sure we're yeah. Unless we, do we have more to talk about the mission and how amazing it is? You know, I, I will probably do a little budget read uh, once you're gone just to have, but um, uh, unless you want to hear it, I can do that while you're here. But otherwise, <laughs> uh, I always just do a little budget thing. But um, here, I'll just I'll just read it and you can okay. you can sit and yeah. listen in. Okay. Jaffe had a budget of 16.4 million pounds, which is about $25.4 million at the time, and 68.8 million in today's dollars. The movie premiered at Cannes in May 1986, then opened in the UK October 17th. And then the U.S. October 31st, 1986, opposite Sky Bandits, a strange release day for both films. This movie never quite found its audience, opening in 15th place and slowly dropping from there. It went on to earn 17.2 million domestically and 3.6 million internationally for a total gross of 56.3 million in today's dollars. That unfortunately lands the film with an adjusted loss per finished minute. This is a silly thing we do on this show, but mm. uh, in the scope of how much money movies cost, uh, it lost almost $100,000 per finished minute. Still, with the Oscar nominations, it has certainly stayed in the conversation and hopefully has since found its audience that doesn't surprise me yeah and it's just considering it won at con it's just it's uh awful that it never really kind of found its audience i although i i think that maybe because of the score i think people have probably been returning to it over the years yeah i hope so i mean i think it's you know it's a very powerful movie yeah absolutely yeah. Well, hopefully people will tune into this and they'll go check it out as well. <laughs> hopefully. <laughs> All right. Tell me your story. What's your last little okay, story? Okay. So my got? last little story is that we had, uh, you know, Jim wanted me to make a hat. that was the biggest hat I could possibly. Hats were big then, obviously. Sure, yeah. You know that, right? That was yeah. just, but you got to make the biggest hat that you've ever made. Like <laughs> the biggest <laughs> hat. So it's pretty hard to get a hat you know, made out of the proper materials to be that big, you know, you have to, the hat maker did an amazing job. So also to keep in proportion with her body and what looked beautiful. And, you know, so here's the hat, the hats on the day. It's I'm like, 
very excited about that. It was the first day we saw the whole costume and Jim does a, an amazing reveal. I mean, unbeknownst to me, that was his plan. And, you know, from toes all the way up and it's like, t- you know, so yeah, he did that a lot. He, he does know how to use a, use a costume. He's, he's qu- quite good about that. But anyway, so we get to the set and, you know, I hadn't really, I was, it was such a hard movie to make. We were so busy all the time that I hadn't thought to like, oh my God, she's stepping out of a car, right? She's stepping out of that yeah, car. Right. The yeah. car door, the car door <laughs> is so narrow. <laughs> Oh no. Then I'm looking at it and I'm like, oh my God, she's not going to be able to fit through the car door with that hat. So I'm <laughs> terrified. I'm like sweating bullets on, on set and just, you know, and Jim just uh, didn't blink an eye. And later on, he said to me recently, because we had a conversation about this, he said, oh, I would have just cut and picked it, figured it out. But it's like, mm, you would have been mad too. But <laughs> <laughs> I would have been curious. But, you know, somehow, it was just like the luck of everything that she just bows her head perfectly and slips right through. It looks like magic. Yeah. You know, so it's, and then to it reveal this, yeah. it's kismet and you re- reveal her in her face and just how gorgeous she looks, her completely translucent skin. And, you know, she's just amazing. She's an amazing actress. And just like, uh, you know, following all the way through to today like the things that she said about the film that she just acted in, i'm like good for her she you know the fact mm-hmm. that she's just like hey just shoot me this is what i look like i'm like more mm-hmm. people need to uh talk up and, or speak up and talk that way so mm-hmm. yeah absolutely she's a wonderful person we were reunited in way of water which was really fun we hadn't yeah. seen each other been seen each other in 25 years or something so that's pretty cool. <laughs> just the, the 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 fluid relationships in the film world, always yeah. kind of with, going like with Jim yeah. Cameron at the helm. You know, so we had a lot of war stories. We definitely had a lot of oh, war sure. stories. Oh my gosh, <laughs> what fun! Well, Deborah, uh, this has been an absolutely fantastic conversation with you. Thank you so much for coming and joining me to talk about the mission and all of these other wonderful things that you've been a part of. Uh, it really, is uh, amazing. Well, thank you, Andy, for having me. I've really enjoyed our our conversation too. Do you have like a website or anything where you like have your artwork or your, you you any of your images that you design, anything where people should go, go and follow you? I have an Instagram page now. Pretty, I just started it um, when Way of Water came out. So it's pretty limited. But since then, we've had it. We had the a Titanic anniversary and we're having some more. So I've been kind of quiet on it with uh, being in solidarity with the actors and the, the mm. writers. Sure. So yeah, yeah. hoping hoping that gets settled soon for all of our sakes and that no the audiences can go back to enjoying wonderful films and get back in the theater for sure. That's that's my biggest hope. Back in the theater. Well, hopefully people are getting back into the theater now uh, anyway, just to kind of at least kind of continue uh, yeah. getting those things back where they used to be, you know? Yeah. Tough stuff, man. Oh, I tell you. Tough, tough few years. So... Really has been, really has been. Again, Deborah, thank you so much. Thank you again. For everybody else out there, we hope that you liked the show and certainly hope you like the movie like we do here on Movies We Like. Movies We Like is a part of the True Story FM Entertainment Podcast Network. 
The music is Chonk Clap by Out of Flux. Find the show at truestory.fm and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Threads, and Letterboxd at The Next Reel. If your podcast app allows ratings and reviews, we always appreciate it if you drop one in there for us. See you next time. I love having these wonderful chats on movies we like with all these industry guests talking about some of their favorite movies. So many great conversations on that show about so many great movies. We have so much fun having these conversations, but producing the show week after week does require a lot of work behind the scenes. If you'd like to help support our efforts, one easy way is by using our Originals page when shopping for books and movies that we've covered. Your purchases made through our links give us a small commission at no extra cost to you and allow us to keep having these incredible conversations. The Originals page at thenextreel.com slash originals links to the source material for all the adapted film discussions on The Next Reel's family of podcasts. Purchasing through our links supports the show. It's your one-stop shop for Amazon and Apple links where you can buy your copy of the original source material. Original material for movies we like, movies like Casino Royale. The Silent Partner. Never Let Me Go. Silver Linings Playbook. There Will Be Blood, based on Upton Sinclair's Oil. I believe it's Oil! Oh, yeah. I forgot the exclamation point. <laughs> Plus, by using those links to buy your next read, Apple and Amazon show us a little bit of love, which allows you to support our family of shows with minimal effort. TheNextReel.com slash originals. It's a great way to support the show and find your next page turner. That's right. Head over to TheNextReel.com slash originals to pick out your next read and dig in today. I've been podcasting since 2006. In that time, I've tried countless hosting platforms. But in August 2022, we switched to Transistor to power all of our shows here at True Story FM. And it's been a game changer. I love the Transistor allows unlimited podcasts and storage without extra charges. We can publish so much content. And we do. If you want to start up a podcast, do yourself a favor and host your show on Transistor. With their one-click publishing, you can get your new show onto all the major podcast directories effortlessly. And their website builder lets you quickly build custom sites for each show. The detailed analytics are invaluable, too. You can access all kinds of listener data anytime. Oh, and the versatile players allow you to embed episodes anywhere to reach new listeners. Plus, the team behind Transistor is super responsive and keeps making the platform even better. After using countless hosting services over 15-plus years, Transistor has been, hands down, the best podcast partner for us. If you want a hosting platform to take all the worry out of getting your podcast out into the world, go to thenextreel.com slash Transistor and check it out. Support our show and support your own show by going to thenextreel.com slash Transistor. Start growing your podcast today. <laughs>